The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest, Joe Redota, veteran morning. political consultant, Joe Redota, who divides his time between the fair town of Sacramento and D.C. and points east. Uh, but Joe is the author of a brand new book on the Watergate, Inside America's Most Infamous Address. It's a great book. I just finished it. I had to read it before the podcast. Right. And good, it throw me out. You know. good, good. Um, it's really cool. And there are a couple things uh, I wanted to ask you about. The... Um, the personalities. Uh, there are some examples there of people in the Watergate in the hotel now, like um, Lauren Bacall complaining and calling the concierge Betty Betty um, Betty Bradley, Betty, Betty yeah, Bradley right. and complaining about plastic uh, hangers. And so the concierge, who's really very talented and worked her way up to be a really in a responsible position, she says the only thing that's important here is service. She goes home and gets the wooden hangers from her home and gives them to Lauren Bacall, who then leaves the next day from the hotel taking the hangers with her. I thought that was, come on, yeah. you got to be kidding yeah. me. Yeah, uh, so uh, what, what you're, uh, you're describing is I had this system as I was putting the book together over a couple of years is every time I found a name in any newspaper article or magazine or uh, that was tied to the Watergate, like a resident or an employee or an investor or something like that or a hotel guest, uh, try to find out if that person was still alive. If so, write them, call them, um, email them. If they're dead, get their obituary, try to find their kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I saw a mention of this woman named Betty Bradley who gave a couple of interviews in the 80s about her life as a Watergate concierge, the Watergate Hotel's first woman concierge. And I tracked down her children, and they said, wow, well, uh, our mom left a bunch of tapes. She's been gone a long time, but in the 80s, she recorded some interviews, and we have a box of tapes. And we haven't listened to them, but maybe they'll be helpful to you. And so they send the tapes up, and I digitized them and sent the CDs and the originals back. And so the kids were able, they're all, you know, they're grown, but they were able to finally hear their mom talking about her day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then all of this was wild. It was a bit basically, you know, she was describing daily life and some of the behind the scenes scandals. Um, at the Watergate Hotel, and really, what was uh, where it was the heyday of the hotel, or one of the one of the key eras of the hotel was like late seventies, early eighties, uh, under new management, a guy named Nicolas Salgo. Uh, that's when this very famous French restaurant comes into the basement, and that's like the peak years of um, the Watergate hosting all the stars who were performing at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. Was this sort of a go-to place for? Celebrities, I guess uh, you know there are examples. I guess as Betty uh, Betty Bradley again talks about um, uh, Shelley Winters eating uh, breakfast down in the uh, breakfast in her in her uh, slippers yeah. and robe. She'd wear the hotel, uh, yeah. Her, I don't know if it's hotel robes or her own, but she'd be <laughs> in the dining room of this five star luxury hotel eating with, eating breakfast in her slippers and her robe. So oh, really? I think at that era that there probably wasn't much competition. Uh-huh, yeah. um, and it was and the stars liked being at the Kennedy Center. It was right there. Betty and Davis coming Betty into Davis. the hallway with or coming into the lobby with yep. a paper bag. Right. She drops yeah. it and they smell alcohol all the way. And it's those little bottles that you have that you oh, airplane bottles. And, yes. Right. So yeah the hotel has this interesting life. It, uh, the hotel opened in nineteen sixty seven 
Um, and it was like uh, all suites. They were big apartment building, uh, big uh, hotel rooms. Most of them, if not all of them, had kitchens. And they were kind of rented out like to corporate, a lot more rented out to corporations on a monthly or annual basis. And it was like, that's where you would put your CEO up coming in to, you know, to law, or you're, you know, you use it as like a gift for, you know, for VIPs to stay sure. in my, my suite. And, um, and so a lot of the stars would stay there for like a long time because they'd be performing at Kennedy Center for maybe uh-huh. a month or even, you know, or perhaps even longer. Um, and uh, over the years, the hotel under different management starts to decline. At one point, it's uh, run by the Cunard Lines. Uh, which was, um, you know, the British uh, ocean liner, man, you know, company. And um, it just started to decline and the b- business fell off and there were no other competitors in town. And so um, I tell the story of sort of this decline of the hotel um, uh, over time and it eventually it closes with the idea that it's going to be reborn as another uh, co-op apartment building. And then that scheme collapses. Uh, it's one of the first casualties of the Great Recession is the Watergate Hotel because Lehman Brothers was the uh, the banker. Oh, wow. Um, the, um, the Watergate, this is kind of what gives you a sense of how fun the, the, the book was to write because it's like these moving parts. There's six buildings. There's three apartment buildings, uh, Watergate East, Watergate West, Watergate South. There's two office buildings and there's a hotel. And they each have their own little personalities and their own stories and their own places in history. For example, Watergate South is uh, the more, more, most recent of the three apartment buildings uh, to open in 1971. And that's where you find Bob Dole living next door to Monica Lewinsky. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's where you find um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg having Antonin Scalia and his wife over for New Year's Eve. And then down the hall from Monica Lewinsky lives a guy named Charlie Tree, and he's the central figure of the China influence peddling uh, campaign finance scandal of the Clinton years. The Clinton Gore <laughs> Buddhist Temple scandal <laughs> takes, you know, it involves a guy a few doors down from the other scandal, which was Monica. Um, uh, and uh, that's just an example. That building has all, uh, you know, has all those characters in it. There's where, one group, there's one group that, um, uh, or one couple that moved in, I can't remember their name, but she was not happy that there wasn't a place. Uh, a formal dining or dining area, and they would eat out in the hallway. Oh, so um, so there is this. Um, uh, I, I tell a story about the first people to move into the first building, and and uh, to put it, this is 1965, and the Watergate uh, is really this. It's, no, it's, it's a building nobody's ever seen before in Washington. It's this. It's this campus, ten acres. Big building, very modern. It is designed by an Italian architect, and this is when Italy was the coolest thing on the planet, right? This is uh, this is the era of Gina Lola Brigida and Maserati cars, and you know, and the movies in Rome are the coolest movies you could possibly see, right? So it's this Italian building in Washington, ultra luxury, ultra private, and so I tell the story that I track down some of the people who over time have talked about their first moves into Watergate. And there was this one family uh, that moved in from the suburbs and the, uh, uh, the wife was to turn her husband like, well, where do we eat? Because there was no formal dining room in this apartment. It just was one big room looking over the Potomac. Um, and uh, what they did in that, on this particular floor to get acquainted, they would have group dinners in the hallways once a week where they would set up a table 
down the center of the hallway and every all the neighbors would get together and have a dinner in the hallway this is kind of amazing it's pretty cool right? <laughs> that would never happen today yeah. and then so, he would vacuum up afterwards yeah, right? yeah. so the way way i sort of when i was reading about these people um some a couple of them actually as an aside moved to the watergate specifically because they were uh, they wanted to live in, in a, the city that was more diverse than Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia, um, there just was still that sort of culture of segregation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but these, I, I kind of got the feel that this was almost like a freshman dorm. Um, that um, it was like part fishbowl, uh, part pressure cooker. Um, so it's you know it's uh, it's a place where people who were you know usually very successful, very smart, had interesting lives. You know, there's journalists there. There's politicians, bureaucrats, ambassadors, there's some spies, there's a lot of corporate types, and they're all right up against each other, bumping each other in the pool in the, yeah, in the, in the elevator. And that's part of the excitement of the place is to not have walls between you and your neighbor and have this sort of sheltered, private Georgetown life, but just, just to be out there and to be visible. There was, and, there was one guy, um, I found him really interesting, uh, Walter Fortzheimer. Fortzheimer, yeah. And um, he's a Yale lawyer, and he the day after World War, a uh, day after Pearl Harbor, he joins the army, the Air Intelligence Group or something, and he works for Lewis Powell, later becomes uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Um, and he's an intelligent. You can tell that this guy's involved in intelligence in some fashion, um, but he winds up helping to write the National Security Act, and then uh, somehow. Um, that set up the CIA, and then somehow he convinces, he sort of morphs into a CIA guy, and then he convinces the director of the CIA to set up a library. So on intelligence issues, so he is in the Watergate, and he had, I mean, you know this better than I do, but he had two apartments, and he's collecting books from all over the place. He had, I think, at the end, I think he had like 9,000 volumes, eight to 9,000 volumes there. It was just yeah. pretty amazing. Everything he could get on intelligence, and he would buy two copies. So he could have one. And one would go to the CIA. But I have one question. Is, is the library in the CIA or is it in the Watergate? So uh, so the library that Walter set up, Walter's a very interesting person. And I, and I, I wonder what, his, what really he did because yeah. he just seemed to be almost like a Zelig-like character over, over the years. I got to interview um, one of his protégés, uh, a scholar who's written a history of the CIA, who talked about what it was like to go to Walter's apartment and have – have sherry and talk about the CIA, you know, with the CIA buddies. Um, the uh, so the art, the library is still at the CIA out in Virginia, and then his all of his books went up to Yale. At one point, he was uh, working with Bill Casey to establish like a spy museum before there was a spy museum and get congressional kind of come up with a public museum around espionage and to which he would have donated his books uh-huh. but that didn't happen so i have this picture which i i've seen a picture which i don't um use in the book of, of him at the watergate pool wearing a sassy leopard or tiger print uh pool pool bathrobe you know and it, he was this uh you know lifelong bachelor had two apartments filled them with books and um, so is is lifelong back for bachelor euphemism for um, he was gay? I have no idea, oh, no idea. Okay. Um, uh, but I thought he was a really interesting character, and um, uh, and and had um, you know he served this. Uh, he's one of the two spies, possibly one of the two spies. So we don't know if he was really a spy, but he's at the CIA. And the other spy 
in the book, a self-described spy, is a woman named Aileen Griffith. And she uh, is known in history as uh, Aileen, the Dowager Countess Romanones. <laughs> yeah, right. We were talking about her earlier. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She... Um, uh, so she's this uh, uh, like a, 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 a model, awkward, awkward look. Uh, I would think awkward-looking woman, but dramatic and becomes yeah. becomes a countess. But she and moved, she's a legitimate countess. Le, she she actually yeah, totally. married a count, and then uh, when he dies, she becomes the dowager countess, yeah. and then uh, her son's. Son becomes a count, and his daughter. And, and he's a wealthy, but when she goes to Spain, he offers to carry her bags and, and refuses a tip. Yeah, yeah. And they later hook up. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so she, yeah, so she was one of this woman. Aileen was um, uh, on the international best dress list. She was very close to, uh, you know, she's very much a socialite, and um, so she bought into the Watergate in the early Reagan years. And uh, and what she told me, I had this email exchange with her she, well, before she died. She was in, in Madrid, and I hunted her down after reading the books, and she would answer questions sporadically via email. Um, but she told me that she had uh, uh, per- rented and then purchased this apartment at the Watergate in order to perform espionage. Um, and uh, there no is no hiding anything here. No, right? no, yeah. There is some uh, when when she described what 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 she meant by espionage to me. It really sounded like public relations. It sounded you know it sounded like just you know typical DC schmoozing. Uh, but she wrote three books about her life as a spy. You know, people may have heard of them: a Spy War Red, a Spy War of Silk, and a Spy Went Dancing. And they were these big sort of pulpy spy memoirs. And and she was taken down uh, by of all uh, people the, uh, a reporter for W magazine, <laughs> which so the New York Times you know legitimate news you know like well mainstream news yeah. news news are just taking it all at face value. But it was the fashion uh, magazine that decided to file the Freedom of Information Act <laughs> request and and sort of tweak her as maybe her books were fabricated. How did it wind up uh, with her? Was she discredited, or was she no, sort of flamboyant know, I, enough to get on? I think she was. She after, uh, it was after her second book that she got whacked, and you know she did. She just wrote two more books, and she just <laughs> kept drinking diet coke out of a champagne glass, and just kind of owned it, and just kept going. Um, There's one thing on the on the Watergate complex. Uh, there was a point there where they wanted to add a fifth building, mm-hmm. and that didn't fly. It, but the only way it flew is if you divided it into two and added. That's how we got to the six buildings now. So they right. they took one and they cut it in half. What was I mean? What, what was the rationale? So there? so um, uh, so the Watergate basically has is uh, is a source of conflict. The physical uh, structure of the Watergate is a source of conflict before it's even built. So there are this, all these fights that take place between. Like 1961 to 19, and not resolved in 64. It's so almost three years of, of wrangling over should the Watergate be built at all, and how big should it be, and what 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 should it look like? And that is a fight that causes heartburn all the way up into uh, the Oval Office. It was actually I found in the Kennedy Library a heads up memo from a guy named Charles Horsky to JFK saying, "Boss, we've got a problem here. Like I've got this this." big fiasco. It's the Watergate. It, believe it or not, it's owned by the, well, the key investor is the Vatican, and this is where all the conflict's coming from, and here's how we're handling it. 
Um, and that's only resolved later under quickly under by LBJ um, and, and uh, they move on. But then uh, the, there's this last building um, and it's the building closest to the Kennedy Center. And under the original agreement, there was this, this thought that we'll, we'll take a second look at this final building because there was this there's sensitivity all the way along the line of how close is the Watergate to uh, the National Cultural Center which becomes the Kennedy Center. And once it becomes the Kennedy Center, it goes from Performing Arts Center to National Shrine. I mean, it changes it, it, its stature and its role and in the, in the district changes once it has the Kennedy name attached to it. And so uh, in, um, in 67 or so, the Kennedy Center decides they, they do not want a, a, the Watergate any closer than it is, and they set out to stop the final building or to shrink it dramatically. Yeah, okay. And so there's this fight that takes place. It involves the uh, Secretary of the Interior um, at the time for LBJ, involved the, the AG a little bit. And there's this fight over what to do with that last building, the one that's close. And then there's a compromise gets reached and then between the developer and the Kennedy Center. And what I thought was sort of fun was then the Watergate residents themselves blow up that deal. They go on the war path and they are, these are people who are uh, connected, right? So, they de- so one of the people deployed to stop the deal is a guy named Tommy Corcoran. Who, whose best friend, one of his best friends is Anna Chenault, who has a penthouse at the Watergate East. And so he helps run this attack on the compromise, blowing it up. Um, Tommy Corcoran, who died in the 80s, he was an advisor to FDR and, uh, and then it became the first super lobbyist of Washington. So he is the, he is the guy who sort of invented modern lobbying, um, uh, a very, very influential man. And, um, and he just knew how, back in the day, how to make Washington work for his clients. And one of his projects was stopping this deal. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so they ended up, the only way to, uh, to settle the matter was to cut the building in half so that uh, half of it would be apartments that became Watergate South. And then half of it facing the Kennedy Center becomes offices. And I think the reason is the, uh, the Kennedy Center was happy with that. Uh, was because they didn't want to have people like hanging their laundry and you know watching TV like right you know adjacent to the Kennedy Center. So it's a much uh, it's a it's a flatter building. It's it's dark at night, um, uh, but it, you know it's a, uh, from a apartment perspective. I I think it would be be nice to be, have an apartment with a view of the Kennedy Center. And unfortunately, that's not available. You know. Um, um of course, getting back to the break-in, I always yeah. think of the Watergate. I think of Watergate break-in. But one of the photos you had in the book was uh, <clears throat> a plainclothes detective with long hair and a hippie vest. Carl, Carl, Carl Schofer, yeah. Schofer. Schofler, I think. Um, so he's going through the evidence. He's looking. You know, he's there. He's on the crime scene. This is after the arrests, I guess. Right. And the photo credit is Paul Leeper. Yeah. And I, rem- I don't remember Schofler, but I remember Paul Leeper was a detective on the bum squad that went into the Watergate, the plainclothes people. And, and I thought, so he's taking photos. How did you get that photo? So, uh, Paul, so there are, uh, in, there are three uh, officers that sort of answer the call. They're on the sort of vice squad. They're undercover officers. They're sort of hanging out in that part of town trying to catch prostitutes and pimps and what have you. And um, and so there, uh, they answer the call uh, to, that there's a, something happening at the water at the Watergate office building. Their thought going in, according to news reports and interviews they gave over time, 
um, that there might be a burglary of IBM's electric tele, 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 uh, typewriters because there was a wave of typewriter theft going on at the time. Um, but be, uh, they come in, they're, a, uh, uh, they're an unmarked car, and so that, the fact that they're an unmarked car means that the observation team at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge don't know what, you know, they think it could be a resident, uh, you know, a, a tenant or something like that. So um, uh, the photo that's in the book uh, comes from Paul Leeper, who's still alive. Schaffler has passed away, but Paul, I did interview Paul Leeper. Um, that's great. And, uh, and then he, um, he made a bill. He had three photos. We use uh, one in the book, and I'll, I'll release a couple of the others uh, another time. But he had three photos that he took. One of them is very fun. It's of his, uh, the three officers standing triumphantly in front of the Watergate office building in their, plan, in their undercover um, uh, clothes. Um, and the photo in the book is, um, uh, shows uh, the, uh, the team uh, going through one of the two hotel suites that was used as a staging ground. That, um, the Watergate Hotel, which I stayed at, is great. It's reopened. It's a it's fantastic hotel. And they, um, they've, they've uh, done a great job on the renovation of, you know, a really important mid-century building and really jazzed it up. It's very stylish. But they've also really uh, embraced the scandals past of the Watergate. So they, one, of the other th- one of the things they did was they took Suite 214 and renamed it the Scandal Suite. And it is dedicated to the break-in with a whole bunch of Watergate <laughs> trivia on the walls. And so, that, so 214 was one of the two suites. You know, one of the great stories of the Watergate... Um, was written by the L.A. Times, and they interviewed the guy who was Baldwin, I think. He was across the street Alfred. at the Howard Johnson, and he kept track. He was the lookout guy, and, uh, and he kept track of uh, the, pe- the, the squad, the police people, when they came in, and he saw the lights going up. He saw them, you know, as they were doing the flashlights, and they were going one floor and then the next and going up. It's really amazingly dramatic, and uh, <clears throat> he's trying to warn them, and they turn the sound down yeah. on the radio. So it's, it's kind of like a comedy of errors. The police weren't uniformed. The sound is down on the radios. Um, and you're just waiting for them. It's inexorable. They're going to get captured. You just know they are. You know? And actually, I think the movie did a pretty good job of that. I mean, I thought... All the President's Men? Yeah. Uh, except for there's an error. Um, uh, at the end, beginning of All the President's Men, the... Um, the the voiceover is reporting that there's uh, there's activity on the eighth floor of uh, of the Watergate office uh-huh. building, and in fact, it's the sixth floor. Um, and that scene appears at the very end of the Post, Steven, Steven Spielberg's movie, The Post. And so, when the footage comes up, I go, oh, "Here we go again." And Spielberg corrected it, <laughs> so Spielberg has it correctly at the sixth floor. I was actually able to. Uh, I took a tour of the of the offices that are now on the sixth floor so i got to be on the balcony and kind of see how it all worked it was it was pretty fun and there was a guy he was watching i know i think you mentioned this um the other night but uh givener yeah he's the intern yeah and um He's making calls on the watch line. He's hanging around, and he's basically a Watergate Baldwin is waiting for him to leave so he can give the all clear for the burglars to go up. And he's in the DNC office, and he's making calls his girlfriend, calling in Lorain, Ohio, calling people at school. And he's, I guess, drinking coffee, or he goes out and pees in the potted plant. Then he comes back, talks more, goes out and pees in the pot. And they're waiting for this guy to get out of there so the burglars can go. And I don't remember reading that anywhere no, else. It was mentioned. It was mentioned in passing in like a Harper's article. So I tracked him down. Bruce Givnery still alive. He ended up at one point being a law partner of um, 
William Ginsburg, who at one point was Monica Lewinsky's very famous uh, attorney. Uh, so Bruce Givner, I interviewed him. He's the last person to leave the Democratic National Committee suite prior to the break-in, and the guy was hilarious. And uh, <laughs> and this, one of his claims to fame is you know being there. And he, and he told me the story of coming. He, you know that's Friday, comes into work. Uh, I think the next day. And to you know, help answer the you know the mail, and the and the place is just blown up. Because and he asks, well, what's what happened? What's going on? He said, oh, there was a break in last night. And uh, right after you left. Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, part of the fun of the book was to uh, interview so many people whose lives touched the Watergate in different eras, and and, and um, you know the the documents. You know, I'm a, you know researcher by trade, so finding the uh, the documents nobody's looked at before that was exciting. But also get, getting to talk to people was terrific. Yeah. So well, now, you know, you mentioned just in passing you're a researcher by trade. In fact, your your real job is that you do opposition research and other yeah, things. Yeah. Oh, opposition so, researcher by trade. That's yeah. different, right? Yeah. 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 Well, part sort of. of. Part of uh, it, yeah. So, what, you know, we have to ask you, so what do you think about what's going on right now in the country as far as Republicans and Democrats? Do you do you see a big Democratic wave coming? We, we talked to Paul Mitchell about this. No, no comment? I'm not, no, I'm just not. That's not my thing. Um, uh, no, I, um, I'm wearing my author hat. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, um, and I haven't been, I actually haven't done partisan work in, in a fairly long time. Um, the, um, uh, my, what was interesting though, doing this book, um, you know, uh, it was, uh, I had to use all of my decades of opposition research experience in order to, you know, find documents around the world, and it's just this, you know, this relentless, if, you know, to put together a, an opposition research uh, profile on a candidate is like writing an unauthorized biography, right? So, yeah. so a lot of those skills honed over time. Um, uh, were helpful in, tr- in tracking down and um, and finding things that were interesting. It might be interesting if people read them, and um, so I don't think it was as a, a, um, a, a abrupt a career sh- shift as it might look from the outside. And then the play I worked on um, la- uh, two years ago uh, about the Carol Chessman case, very similar, document driven story. Um, you know, po- epic political implications, but uh, really. Uh, you know, starting with the facts. So, like, what 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 is in these archives, and how do we make a story out of what's what's there? Well, I could talk for hours. I could ask you hours <laughs> worth of questions. Thank you, Joe Rodota. Thank you very much I'm for glad doing you that. liked it. This was great. Yeah, yeah we really appreciate it. Tim Foster, thank you. Thank you. And I'm John Howard. We'll see you next time around on the Capital Weekly podcast. <laughs>